Scripture reading this morning is found in Galatians 6, 14. Galatians 6, 14. Be it far from me to glory in anything or anyone except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Dean has our sermon for today. preacher had just given a sermon and he was out in the foyer the ladies and men came by one little lady came up to him and said oh my that was a wonderful sermon that was just the best sermon I've ever heard and the preacher said to her yes lady I know this devil told me before I got off the platform so today I want to focus on scripture and let the person talking step aside. It was three o'clock in the morning again. This really happened to me for the second time. Um, last time it was Peter. This time I woke at three o'clock all of a sudden and I, I was overwhelmed with an impression. It wasn't a voice, just an impression. Get up and read Galatians. And I said to myself, what are we talking about here? I'm tired. I have a big day ahead of me. No, the impression persisted. Three o'clock in the morning. And I guess you know as well as I do about tossing and turning. Um, and 
At 3.10 a.m., I decided, well, I better do what this impression is saying. So I literally got up, turned on the lights, and somewhat grudgingly, but I opened my Bible, and I did what this impression said to me, open to Galatians and read. I, I was soon happy that I did. I had a glorious time with God's word that morning for the next few hours. I also, in prelude to what we're going to open the Bible to today, I want to say a few words. I, um, I discovered something. Have you ever had a, a major discovery in God's words? I mean a life, shall we say, just a life-changing discovery as you've been reading God's word. Has that ever happened to you? Well, it happened to me again as I got into Galatians and then I decided this word grace is coming up over and over again and I decided I wonder about the next, the other epistles Paul wrote. What did they say? So what I did, I, I went to the first of every epistle and I didn't read but a few words and here was that grace word. And then I decided, well, let me, let me turn to the end of the chapter and I here was the grace word again. And I rapidly went epistle after epistle. I went through Ephesians, you know, Colossians, um, Philippians, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Timothy. It was even there, even Hebrews. And I discovered the first few words of every epistle that Paul wrote talked about grace. And the end of every epistle talked about grace. So I'm saying to myself, this must be very important. This, it's got to be very important. It was a wonder that I discovered. I'd never realized that before. I knew the Bible is filled with grace from Genesis to Revelation. I knew that. But I didn't realize that Paul thought about it so much that he began every epistle and ended every epistle with grace. Meaning the cross of Christ. Meaning his righteousness. Christ our righteousness. Every epistle. So I decided, oh, that's a great study. The grace of Jesus is his righteousness by faith. It is our righteousness when it is given to us. His righteousness that covers us. He offers it to us, a free gift. You see, salvation is free, but it costs everything. You see, it's free, but it costs our life our mind, our heart, our soul. It cost everything. But yet it's free. It's in the very air we breathe if we just reach out and take it. So grace, the cross, is the keynote of Scripture. A prolific writer ordained by God to write some things on this subject, a little lady just over five feet tall, who was a messenger of God's word, wrote these words at the end of time quote one interest will prevail one subject will swallow up every other she's talking about the righteousness of Christ review and herald December of 1890 she also wrote the enemy of man and God is not willing that this truth justification by faith should be clearly presented for he knows that if the people receive it fully his Power will be broken. You've heard those words before, I think. Review and Herald, December of 1889. 
When we are confronted with the gospel, the cross, and the invitation from Jesus, we either say yes, maybe, or no. And if we've said maybe, most of the time we've said no. Paul was the author of Galatians. There's no question about it. In the end of the book, he says three, four little words. I did this by my own hand. By my own hand. Paul was about five foot six, history tells us. Jewish man with a big old hawk nose. And sort of a strange looking fellow. But it's interesting that God had his hand on Paul even in the womb. A couple of weeks ago we had a text in Psalms that said, I knew you even when you were in the womb before you were born. Paul had his, God had his hand over Paul when he didn't even know it was over him. Paul, the author of Galatians and the other epistles. You see, Paul had a real problem. He thought what he was doing was the right thing. What was he doing? He was out killing Christians. He was out kill, killing Christians of the new faith of Jesus. He was tearing men from the family, watching their children with tears, crying their eyes out as their father was jerked away, taken to Jerusalem and put in prison or killed. That was Paul. And he did it in the name of God. He thought he was doing the right thing. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through Paul, would write words that would end up in our Bible today, that we have right here today, in your Bible. Words about salvation of mankind, about how we enter heaven, words about righteousness by faith, words that can lead us to the foot of the cross. Remember, Jesus is talking to us via the Holy Spirit, to Paul. Listen in on what Paul penned to us. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Colossians 3.2. And lest any of us should think that we do not have a chance of salvation or we are not worthy of receiving that gift, please listen to other words that Paul penned. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Well, he's talking to me, perhaps to you. I'm foolish sometimes. I'm weak. I'm not wise. So I say to myself, he's talking to me. So that gets my attention. So Paul says to us, do not worry. I will take care of your weakness. I can work through your weakness. And I can do mighty things. Paul cautions us, lest any of us should think and feel we're better than anybody else. Paul says something that gets right to our hearts. Here's what it is. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Oh, what are the next words? Of whom I am chief. Paul. This man that wrote our New Testament, much of it, says he was the chief of sinners. How can that be? He saw himself as we need to see ourselves so that Jesus can accept us. Oh, yes. 
He had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had seen the Savior. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Oh, it was awakened in Paul's mind. Remember, he thought he was doing the right thing by killing Christians. Paul wrote these words. You see, Paul was human and he struggled. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would not do, that I do. He said that after he had the Damascus Road experience. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who will give me salvation? O wretched man that I am. He was torn. He was tempted. He was He was torn. Well, the good news is that Paul answers his own question and plea, O wretched man that I am, he answers that in the book of Galatians, of all places. The book of Galatians. So realize now it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Actually, 3.10 in the morning. And I open to Galatians. And I had a wonderful experience. I'd like to share some things. Mainly we're going to focus on scripture. I'll make a few minor comments. But we're going to read God's word. If you wish to open your Bibles, that would be wonderful. Galatians. Paul. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Well, here we have right off. Jesus Christ, God the Father, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Remember, if Jesus never did rise from the dead, we have no hope of salvation. We need to remember that. Verse 3, grace be to you. Here's the grace word that we talked about. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. We must pause here. Grace be to you. He's giving, the idea he's giving us that God wants to give us his grace. He wants to save us, doesn't want to harm us, who gave himself for our sins. Here's the fact of the cross The two thieves, Jesus in the middle. To home be glory, thank you. To home be glory forever and ever. Now, to whom be glory forever and ever. Here we have a reference to eternity. Eternity is forever and ever. Glory be forever and ever. Verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Oh, Paul had that Damascus Road experience. There was no doubt in his mind where his gospel came from. Not a whit of doubt. No doubt at all. Though an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now, we need to go back at this point and realize why Paul wrote Galatians. 
History tells us that he wrote Galatians because on his first missionary journey, he had established this church. But months had gone by, months had gone by, and he got word from that area, the Galatian church, that things were not going too well. There were people, according to history, called Judaizers. They were the Pharisees. They were the people that had not accepted Christ as Savior. They were the old Judah people who believed that Jesus was not the Son of God. So they were coming into that church stirring up trouble, trying to say, you Christians, you must also go back and keep all the old laws of Moses, all the Moses laws that had been, a day with, had been done away with at the cross of Christ, saying you must be circumcised before you can be a Christian, all these things, the Gentiles. And so he had a terrible problem on his hand. The church was torn asunder, torn asunder. And it was dissolving before his ears as he heard these messages. So that's why he wrote the book of Galatians. For do I now persuade men or God? In verse 10 he says, Or do I seek to please men? For if yet I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So here he's saying, My, my message from you is not from men. It's not from me. It's from God. It's from the Lord. Verse 11, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he's confirming for us where he got the message of Galatians in his other epistles. It was from Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to Paul, to us. For ye have heard, verse 13, for ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Oh my, the guilt that Paul must have had after the Damascus Road experience to realize and remember what he had done. And there were Christians all over the place that didn't really think he had really been a converted man yet. He had to deal with that too. He would go into a church and they'd say, oh, there's that man that killed my uncle. There's the man that killed my wife. Can you imagine that agony of spirit Paul had dealing with that? Verse 14, And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation. In other words, he says, I was the greatest Pharisee of all of them. But being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers, yes, he says, I was the greatest Pharisee of all. Verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb... And called me by his grace. Here he's going back and saying, yes, folks, even before I was born, God had his hand on me. My, my. Um, verse 16, to reveal his son in me that I may preach him among the heathen, the Gentiles. And immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now down to verse 20. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God... I lie not. It is truth. He was trying to let them know it was from God. Verse 23, But they had heard only that he had persecuted us in times past, now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And then finally, apparently these people believed Paul as they heard the gospel preached, because verse 24 says, And they glorified God in me. There's a clue that they finally had the message. Paul was a converted man. They had nothing to fear. He wasn't a secret agent of the enemy anymore. Let's turn down to verse 9 
of chapter 2. And James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me and gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So here he's documenting that some of the major new Christians that had risen up in God's grace, that they were accepting Paul. Now verse 10, I think for our church, is really, really important. And I think we're doing this in the past. We're doing it now. We need to do more of it in the future. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Let's review, you know. Jesus spent most of his time, those three years and his walking the earth, that he was spent most of his time with the poor, the underprivileged, those that had major problems. We just think of blind Bartimaeus. Was he a wealthy man? How about the ten lepers that came to him? Were they wealthy of earth's goods? They had nothing. They were beggars. How about the poor woman that touched his robe and was healed? How about her? The Bible said she had spent all her money trying to be healed. How about the widow of Nain? In that time, we remember, the widows were the lowest of the low. The widow of Nain. All these people that were recorded in Scripture that came in contact with Jesus. He understood them. For you see, he had left heaven and the glories of heaven and the throne room to come down and be a man who owned nothing except his sandals and his robe, which were given to him. That's all he had, his sandals and his robe. Let's go over to... Let's go to verse 16 of chapter 2. Here we get into the meat of Galatians. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Could it be more clear? Could it be more clear? Here brings up the age-old fight in the church. I mean from Jesus' time onward, <coughs> not only our church at times. Faith and works, which is most important, on and on. Justification, sanctification, on and on the fight goes at times. But I think, as we think about it, it is so simple. If we're imbued by the Spirit, we've been born again, as we must do to enter God's kingdom, then and only then does the sanctification work. Then and only then do our works matter for God. Because then we're compelled to do things. We can't help ourselves. We just do them because the heart wants to do them, the mind wants to do them, and then God can accept it. If we do it as a Pharisee to be seen of men or something of that type, God says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's so simple. If we just take the word, what it says. There's no free grace here. It doesn't exist. Now, down to one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I am crucified with Christ. Verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
At this juncture, I want to divert just a moment, tell you a, yeah, I'd say a heartrending personal story. Got a call recently from uh, her daughter. She was in tears. She said, you know, talking about my grandson, our grandson, you know, um, she said, my son, who's been studying the Bible and just really seemed to be feeding on the word and memorizing scripture, suddenly he announces to me, you know, he says to his mother, um, I've decided I don't want to be a Christian. When I was trying to be a Christian, I was miserable. I was absolutely terribly miserable. And now that I've decided I don't want to be a Christian, oh, now I'm happy. Now I'm happy. And his mother burst into tears and cried for four days. What? Well, my grandson doesn't understand yet, even though he's read scripture and memorized scripture, he doesn't understand that his name is written on the palms of Christ's hand. He has yet to understand that. Verse 21, let's go on. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, oh, listen to these words, then Christ is dead in vain. If our righteousness doesn't come from the cross, from salvation from the cross, Christ died in vain. If I'm trying to work my way to heaven via Mount Sinai by keeping his commandments and thinking I'm a good person, Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, we want to climb by Mount Sinai because we love him, because we're compelled to do the commandments, because we must do them, because we love a personal savior. That's a secret. And then he gets into verse chapter three. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Listen to these incredible words. He's writing to Galatians. The Judaizers are tearing the church apart, and he's saying, O foolish Galatians, who hath betwitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has, hath been evidently set forth and crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by works of the law? In other words, did you receive the righteousness of Christ by your works or by the hearing of faith? Remember what Abraham was told in Scripture. He believed and righteousness was given to him. He believed God way back there, millenniums ago. He got the message. Hopefully and trust we all get the message too. Are ye so, verse 3, are ye so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? See, he's saying this over and over again in different words. You, you start out with the Spirit, but then you sort of go to your own works for salvation. No, 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 no. It's Spirit always, all the time, forever. And again, there is no, as I see it, there's no conflict with faith and, wor faith, faith and works. Because the works will follow if we know the Savior, if we know him as a personal Savior, and know him as our friend, not a fearful God, then we will do the works that Jesus says you must do to enter heaven. 
I think it's all right here. Verse 5, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he, doeth he by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? In other words, all your good works, even to the point of doing miracles, are you doing that under your own power? When Peter and Paul went out just before Pentecost and went to the temple and that man that was there withered and sick and, and cried out for help, Peter says, what did he say? Silver and gold have I none. But what I have, I give to you. And the man was healed. And Peter let him know it wasn't by Peter's strength. It was God working through Peter. Okay, on down now. But that no man is justified, verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 11. That no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for here are some words we are to never forget. For the just shall live by faith. We heard these words earlier in Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. I point you now to the great controversy where the author talks about Luther. She was very high on Luther. Very, very high. And talked about him as a major, major person in history. Of course, he was the prominent person that the Protestant Reformation came about. He was from a poor family. His father was a copper miner. Did you know that? A copper miner, very poor man. Um, but his parents were godly people as far as they knew the Lord. And they imbued in this young boy... Um, principles of God and salvation. Somewhere along the line, however, he got things a little twisted. When a late teens, he began to think of God as a tyrant out to get him. He had this, the Spurgeon, the Charles Spurgeon experience, who thought that God could never accept him, and God was a, 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 a God that was out to get him. You know the cartoon of the great big desk and the white-haired, angry-looking person up there representing God, looking way down at a tiny little sinner about this high, shaking in his boots. Um, that's the experience that Martin Luther had. Here's some words from the Great Controversy. He was, from time to time, he was so poor that from time to time, just to go to school, he had to get his food by singing from door to door. Did you know that? And he often suffered from hunger. The prevailing, the God thing filled him with fear. He would lie down at night with a sorrowful heart, looking forward with trembling to the dark future and in constant terror to what was coming upon him. Troubled about the dark future in constant terror at the thought of God as a stern, unrelenting judge, a cruel tyrant, rather than a kind heavenly father. The fear of the Lord dwelt in his heart of Luther. The fear of God, you know the Bible's idea of fear is not only that we need to fear him because he's all-powerful God, but we, more importantly, it's awe and wonder about this wonderful person. And he did not fail to begin each day with prayer while his heart was continually breathing a petition for guidance and support to pray well, he often said, is the better part of study 
on any given day. While one day examining the books in the library of the university where he now was, Luther discovered a Latin Bible, such a book he had never before seen. He had never seen a Bible. He was in his early 20s now. Now for the first time he looked upon the whole word of God. He had heard the word mentioned from the pulpit before, but just the New Testament had been quoted. And he thought that was the whole Bible. He had no idea there was an Old Testament at that point. Now for the first time he looked upon the whole of God's word with mingled awe and wonder. He turned the sacred pages with quickened pulse and throbbing heart. He read for himself the words of life, pausing now and then to exclaim, Oh, that God would give me such a book for myself. Angels of heaven, listen to these words. Angels from heaven were by his side and rays of light from the throne of God revealed the treasures of truth to his understanding. He had ever feared to offend God, but now the deep conviction of his condition as a sinner took hold of him as never before. Above everything else, he delighted in the study of God's word. He had found a Bible chained to the convent wall, and to this he often repaired. As his convictions of sin deepened, he sought by his own works to obtain pardon and peace. Listen to these amazing words. He had a most rigorous life, endeavoring by fasting, by virgils, by scourgings. He literally whipped himself, thinking that he could somehow better himself to, so God would accept him. My. Trying to subdue the evils of his nature. And he later said, I followed the rules of my order more strictly. This is quoting Martin Luther himself now. Followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever monk would obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. There we have the secret. Do we get to heaven by our own works? Do we get to heaven by Christ's righteousness working through us? And then he says, if it had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification to death. So later on, a few years later in life, he decided he needed to go to Rome to see what that was all about. He was just a poor priest out in the village. So he went to Rome, and there's a couple of paragraphs or so talking about everything he found there. All kinds of cursing by priests, all kinds of horrible things he observed the priests were doing. So he decided to climb those famous steps that were in Rome on his knees. You know how those folks of that persuasion think they can work their way to heaven by climbing those steps on their knees. So Luther did just that. Luther was one day devotedly climbing these steps when suddenly a voice like thunder sounded to him. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He went to his Bible, found Romans 1.17, found Galatians 3.11. The just shall live by faith. His life was never the same anymore because he had the secret of salvation and the secret that it eluded him for all his years until that point. Then a few more words and we're back to Scripture. He was no longer the mere monk or professor, 
but the authorized herald of the Bible, he had been called as a shepherd to feed the flock of God that were hungering and thirsting for the truth. He firmly declared that Christians should receive no other doctrine than those which rest on the authority of the sacred scriptures. Great controversy, verses, pages 120 through verse, uh, pages 126. Back to scripture, chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And that's quoting back to Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is every one that hangs on a tree. We go on to verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after that, faith has come. We are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, this isn't saying, as some Protestant people say today, oh, all those Ten Commandments, they're done away with. They're nailed by, to the cross by Christ when he died. Are you kidding me? Are we then going to start coveting because Christ died on the cross? Are we then going to start killing people? Are we then going to start doing all those things? Ten Commandments. Yeah. No, I think Christ answered that in the Sermon on the Mount. And he also answered it with those famous words in John where it says, To all the law and the prophets hang on two things. Love to your fellow man. Love to God. There's no wiggle room there. No wiggle room there. And then he says in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know what came up in my mind when I read those words? Going way back to age five, six, seven. Red and yellow, Black and white, all are precious in his sight. Paul told us about it. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. He said it in verse 28. It also says that we are, although we may not be Jews, we are Abraham's seeds according to the covenant, according to the promise that we've been given. Now chapter 4, quickly, onward. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, don't you love those words, when the fullness of time was come? You know, the Bible says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the fullness of time. I just love those words. And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Then on to verse... 16, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Because I bring you the gospel, do I, am I an enemy? Allow me to divert one more time out of scripture to a modern day story that really hit home to me as I found it recently. 
It was just another day, and a man dressed in blue jeans, shirt, and baseball cap took out his violin. He was in the Plaza Metro Station in Washington, D.C. He started to play, playing some wonderful pieces there, concert-type pieces. He took his violin case and opened it and put some seed money in there, and as the passers-by went by, he was inviting them without asking them to put some money because he portrayed himself as a homeless, homeless man, a poor man, you see. He was playing, he played five beautiful concert melodies, 1,097 people by actual count passed by him. A few stopped for a few moments to listen, hurried on their way. After he'd finished the five pieces, he counted the money, $53.17 were in his violin case. $53.17. But this was an experiment by a national newspaper. For you see this man in a baseball cap and jeans with a shirt was the world-famous violinist Joshua Bell, acknowledged as the best violinist in the world. Not only that, he typically commands $1,000 per minute for his concerts when he gives them. Just a few days before he gave a concert at Boston's famous Symphony Hall, the passers-by that day did not realize who he was or that he played on a 3,500,000 Stradivarius violin. What a parable, what a metaphor of the gospel as on that dark day outside Jerusalem, the passers-by hurrying on their way, they saw three men on crosses. Oh, they said, we've seen that before. We see it all the time. On to their business, on to eat dinner. They had no idea that the man in the middle cross was dying to give them salvation. These passers-by didn't realize Joshua Bell was right before them. They had no idea that the man in the middle was trying to give them eternal life. They should have known, but they did not know who was on Calvary's hill. They went on to their own destruction. On that old Damascus road, Paul saw Jesus high and lifted up. He could have rejected him, but he did not. Today we read from his writings. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You see, my job, one of my many, many jobs, is to try to help my grandson understand that verse. There's no burden in following Christ. It doesn't exist. When you follow Christ, you're free. The cement bag is off your back. It's gone. You're free. No more guilt. No more cement bag on my back. Verse 4, Christ has become of you no effect unto you whomsoever you are, justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Here he repeats it over and over and over again. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Then I quickly remind you, we're not talking about free grace here. In other words, once Paul said, well, can you go sin then that grace may abound? 
Oh, that's not what he's saying at all. No. You're compelled not to sin because you love your friend and your master. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ten commandments all wrapped up right here. Verse 16, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one to the other. So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Let's go down to verse, um, running out of time. So let's go to chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one to the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Lest thou also be tempted. Here we are. We should never point our finger at somebody else. We should never say a bad word about somebody else who's struggling because before you know it, you will be doing the same thing Similar thing, even though you don't know it. Perhaps you're a Pharisee and you're looking down your nose at somebody. Oh no. Paul says here, don't do that, Christian. You just lift them up. You help them. You encourage them. You don't discourage them by a bad word. Number, verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3. For if a man th- think himself to be something when he is nothing... He what? He deceiveth himself. Oh my. He deceiveth himself. Well, there's so many more wonderful verses, but we need to close. Verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever ye sow, that shall he also reap. I'm going to desperately try to show my grandson that text. Verse 14, we're going to close shortly. Verse 14, For God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now there's verse 18, the last chapter in Galatians. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I remind you one more time of the revelation I had preparing for this as I went to the other other epistles of Paul. Every epistle starts with grace. Every epistle ends with grace. From Galatians and Romans on through to 1 and 2 Timothy, even Hebrews, even Hebrews. Then may I remind you in the real close... The last verse of the Bible, 1,500 years have come and gone, all the different authors of Scripture, they didn't know each other, but they all talked about grace. And what does John say for us as we close our Bible's final verse? Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. My friends, what more could we want? How can we turn it down? Let us remind ourselves... Each of our names are engraved on the palms.
of Jesus' hands. Eternal Father, what more can we say? Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to know his face, will you this moment his grace receive? I trust that everyone here will do just that. In Jesus' holy name, amen.